See, there we go. Good morning, Velocity. How you doing? Come on. How you doing this morning? All right. You need coffee, apparently. It is great to be here, to be back. Uh, and uh, some of you I know very well, and some of you are fresh faces, so it's great to to be back. It's been seven years since my family left and we moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, and we've got a fo- photo of our recent photo of our family here. Uh, there we go. And uh, so when we left, Timmy was in third grade. He was like this, and now he's taller than I am. I'm actually wearing his shoes this morning. And uh, there's a picture of Susan, our oldest, who, after serving uh, as a high school teacher here in, in Richmond for five years, uh, became uh, full time with Scott and Jen Esposito at, at uh, Reap Granada just a month ago. Uh, and so, uh, so she is overseas now. And then our, our daughter Vika is married to Garrett Clater. Not she's not one in the picture because she's. On, uh, they live down in Norfolk now, uh, where he uh, he's got a job at the shipyards down there, and so uh, we have gr- we have grown. I've grown a little bit the wrong way uh, since we've left a little bit. I'm, I'm because of COVID. I'm trying to lose my COVID extra 10 pounds, and I've got 15 to go, and so uh, that's the way that works. So um, so I, I want to thank you for being a partner of ours. Uh, like Chip said, since Velocity got started, we started. 33 new churches, and when I say we, I mean we've started. It's churches all around the Mid-Atlantic region that pool our money together to help new churches get started. We can do far more together than we ever could uh, by ourselves. Uh, and two of those, uh, we've got two that we are starting this year. And when I say we, I mean we're starting. Uh, one of them is in Bristol, Virginia, and one of them is in Goldsboro, North Carolina. We've got as many as four being planned for next year. Uh, we're a little behind. We didn't plant any last year during COVID, go figure. And uh, so we've got four coming up next year. And so you can be proud to be part of a church that isn't just about this church, but it's about something bigger than that. It's about expanding God's kingdom all over the region. So thank you for being a part of that. I also want to invite you to our biggest event of the year, which is ICOM, the International Conference on Missions, which Waypoint is hosting in Richmond, here in Richmond in November, the weekend before Thanksgiving. And it's an annual gathering of kingdom-minded, missions-interested people from around the country and really around the globe. We'll have as many as 8,000 people coming uh, to Richmond uh, to be part of that convention. And so I've left a a magazine that tells you a little bit about that. Mostly that's in case my message gets a little slow or dry. You've got something uh, to to look at. So I'm trying to help you out there. But I'm going to speak today uh, and give a lesson that I think is particularly helpful for those of us who grew up in a different church background, a different faith tradition, whether it's Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist or Catholic, and to better understand the kind of the history of your uh, background uh, compared to the history of this church and hopefully fill in some of the blanks along the way and make some connections. And so for, for the time that I've got left here, what I want to do is cram in 2,000 years of church history in just a little bit of time. Are you ready for that? All right, this is going to be quick. We're going to just hit the highlights, obviously. And uh, so we're buckle up. What I want to do this morning is create a visual timeline with some volunteers from Velocity that volunteered to, to come across the stage and be a kind of a visual timeline. Uh, and one by one, we're going to bring them up on stage. And uh, kind of like that final scene in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Do you remember that? that some of you are old enough to remember that uh, right across the stage right here. But before we do that, I, I want to uh, start uh, by looking at a passage of scripture that kind of sets this up. It's a fairly familiar passage to some of us. It comes from um, Matthew chapter 16 and begins in verse 13. It's what we call the great confession. And so in verse 13, if you've got your Bibles or your, your uh, app, if you'd like to open that up, this is one that you'd like to highlight on your app and, and star. In verse 13, the Bible records, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, who would have been raised from the dead. Others said Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Uh, but then Jesus says, well, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And so Jesus is kind of gauging whether they're catching who Jesus really is. And it's no surprise that Pete, Simon Peter was the first one to pipe up. And he said, you are the Messiah, uh, the promised one, the, cho- the, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the son of the living God. And so this is why we call this the good confession. And Jesus replied, see what he said to him. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father who's in heaven. And he says, uh, I tell you that you are Peter. And that's the Greek word Petros, which is, means rock. And so he calls him, you're a rock. But it's funny because it's a, it's a little rock. Petros means a rock like maybe golf ball size. He says, you're a rock. He says, but on this rock, Petra, I'm gonna build my church. And that word Petra is a bigger rock. It's like a boulder, like the size of a school bus. And so he says, you're a rock, but on the, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm gonna build my church on that. And then he says, I'm gonna give, uh, the gates of hell are not gonna overcome it, and I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is telling Peter that based on the statement that he made right there, he's gonna build a church, and that he's given Peter the keys. You're gonna, he says, I'm going to, you're gonna open the kingdom of heaven for all mankind. And Peter does that just 50 days after Jesus' death when he preached the first gospel sermon that's recorded for us in Acts chapter two. And so if you would help me, uh, and we're gonna set the stage for it, if you would warmly welcome to the stage, Simon Peter, uh, the, the, the apostle Peter. We, we, he's gonna come up, so welcome him to the stage. Simon Peter is gonna stand right here hopefully in our field of view for those that are, that are online this morning. And you may know the story from Acts chapter one, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the day that the Holy Spirit would come. And so uh, on the day of Pentecost, penta means 50, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. If you remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover. So 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes down on them in a very dramatic way. Is he having, Peter having troubles over there? He's really old now, so he's having a hard time getting dressed. Uh, so, um, so the disciples in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, they're speaking in tongues. They're, they're speaking in languages, uh, human languages that they had never studied or learned before. And uh, they go out into the temple courts during this, this festival where tens of thousands of people have gathered for this Jewish festival called Pentecost. And the disciples start preaching uh, to them just seven weeks, 50 days after Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. And Peter's first sermon is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one in the Old Testament. That's the good news. Then he says the bad news is you crucified the Messiah. That's not good. He says, but the good news is he raised from the dead and now he's up in heaven and uh, he is calling all of us to repent. And the Bible says that the people were convicted. They were, they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter and the other disciples, so what are we supposed to do? What, are we, what do we do to be saved uh, from this reality? And the Bible records what Peter replied. And so Peter, what did, what did you reply to all those people that said, what should we do to be saved? All right, now you gotta say that like a first century preacher with no microphone. You said to them, All right, there you go. That, that's, that's pretty good right there. And repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, now, Peter, I know this was a long time ago. 
But do you remember how many people you guys baptized on that particular day? A lot. All right, he doesn't remember that long ago. It was more than, it was 3,000 people were baptized on the first day of the church. And uh, so the Bible records uh, all those people getting baptized, and it's an amazing story about how God's grace is poured out on the people of Jerusalem, and the church is born that day. The kingdom of heaven is open to mankind, and Peter is the one that ushers it in on that day on A.D. 30. Now, for the next 300 years on our timeline here, the church continues to grow and blossom, even though it's in a period of intense persecution by the Roman government. And uh, depending on the the, uh, emperor that would be in charge, there would be uh, varying degrees of of persecution, but this entire time the church was not in favor with the government, and so, but it would still continue to grow. But then in a very dramatic moment happened in 313 AD, and at this moment the church went from being a persecuted religion to a powerful religion under the leadership of a dude named Constantine. And so would you warmly welcome to the stage Constantine, who would eventually become the Roman Empire. Here he comes. What, I, all right, here we go. All right. Now, at this point in our timeline, Constantine is not yet the emperor of Rome. He's actually a general leading a faction of the army because the Roman Empire is in the midst of a civil war, which Constantine is going to end up winning and become the emperor. But close to the time that he finally gains ultimate power, the night before a very important battle, a historical battle that we call the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. There's a famous painting that shows uh, that battle. Constantine said that the night before, he saw a vision in the sky. And that vision, he said, was of the sun and of the cross. Now, Constantine knew a little bit about the Christian God. Christianity was not in favor with the Roman Empire uh, because the Romans said that there were lots of gods, and Christianity said there was only one God. And so uh, the Romans thought that that was intolerant and bigoted. Does that sound familiar? And so, so they didn't like Christianity. But Constantine did know a little bit about uh, the Christian God, and so he saw this vision in the sky, and he heard a voice. And he said that he heard the voice of God. And so would you welcome to the stage right now the voice of God? All right. There you go. Come stand right, right behind him right there. All right. So Constantine hears the voice of God say something, and the voice said to him, and so you've got to sound like God or Morgan Freeman, with one or the other. In this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. All right. And so Constantine took this to mean that he was supposed to go out and conquer in the name of the Christian God. And so he put the symbol of Christianity on his shields and on his standards. And we got a picture of what that looks like uh, right there. In Greek, it's the first two letters of the name of Christ. It actually looks like an X and a P to us in English, but the Greek letters are key and rho, which is k the first two letters of Christ. And uh, so he put this on his banners and on his shields. He put it on the front page of his website. And uh, they went out and started winning battles in the name of Christ. And so when he eventually did become emperor, Constantine made Christianity the state religion. So Christianity goes from being a persecuted religion to a very powerful religion, basically overnight. 
Now, the good thing about this was that now everyone is able to hear about Christ. It's a whole lot easier to spread the gospel when you're not getting shot at for preaching the gospel. And when there's no persecution, the gospel can spread very easily. But the bad thing is that now it really waters down the level of holiness and conviction in the church. Everyone is basically going to church because they have to. It's expected. It's the state religion. In many ways, by law, you have to be a Christian. So everyone's a Christian, but for almost everybody, it's just in name only. And as a result, over the next several hundred years on our timeline here, the church devolves into a powerful but political entity. And it created massive corruption in the church. And the apex of this power of the church came in 800 AD. And so will you please warmly welcome to the stage Pope Leo III. Oh, where's Pope Leo III? Here it comes. There we go. All right, you can stand right here, Pope. There you go. Thank you very much. And um, where are we at? Basically, say, wait a minute, where do we get the popes? Uh, so uh, let's go back in the timeline, way back to the beginning over there at, at, uh, for the Apostle Paul. At the beginning of the the church, every church was basically autonomous. It was led by a group of local elders or bishops. In the Greek, that's basically the same word. And so these bishops or elders would lead the church. And you can see how over time, the guy who did most of the teaching or most of the preaching or most of the leading would get the title as the elder or the main elder or the bishop. And every town only had one church, not like in America where we've got lots of churches. Every town had one church and thus it had one main elder. And so they, then they started going multi-site. They started planting new churches in the surrounding villages. And so now the bishop is overseeing several churches. And you can see how organization and hierarchy naturally begins in the church. <coughs> and you come to this point in history now where we're here, where you have the Roman church uh, becoming enormously influential because Rome was the political power of the West at the time, kind of like Washington, D.C. would be today. And so you can imagine how powerful the bishop or the elder of Rome became. And he began to be called, even from early times, the bishop among bishops, not yet the pope, but about this time, around 500 uh, AD, we have the fall of the Roman Empire. And it creates a very strange period in world history. There's not a whole lot of political structure or organization in the West. You have the Goths and the Visigoths, the serfs and the lords, every town has its own little fiefdom, and there isn't very much governmental structure at all. And oftentimes the church was the only organized entity in town. People would look to the church and they would look to the bishop for, for leadership. And if you lived in a town and there was an army coming to attack your town, often you'd ask the bishop to gather the army to defend your city. He's the, only, he's the only guy in town who's got any official political power. So you can see how powerful the bishops are becoming. <coughs> so the bishop of Rome about this time starts calling himself Pope or Papa, Father. And he takes on the role of head of the church. And everyone is looking to the Bishop of Rome for leadership anyway, so he, be he becomes a very powerful person. And so now we're gonna fast forward to 800 AD, where we've got Pope Leo. And the Muslims are beginning to encroach on the West. Do you remember back uh, about 15 years ago, 2014, when ISIS was really becoming a, a, a power and they were taking over territory? And we'd see on the news uh, almost every night how their, their, their territory was expanding in the areas of Iran and Syria. And uh, we would watch that map grow and we'd say, how bad is this gonna get? 
Well, imagine back then if you lived in, in the West, say Italy, for example, uh, and you hear the Muslims are taking over territory and they're closing in on the West, and Islam at this stage is about 200 years old, and when they take over a town, they force everyone in town to convert to Islam or die. And there's a whole lot of really tough stuff happening and everyone's afraid and there's no real organized government in the West and there's just these little fiefdoms and everyone's saying to the church leaders, what are we gonna do? We've gotta do something. Well, enter Pope Leo in Italy. Now there was one other leader who was beginning to gain some power in France and his name was Charlemagne, King of the Franks. And, and so Leo began to think to himself, well maybe there's a way that I could unite France and Rome, Italy together to create enough power to ward off the Muslims and establish the Roman Empire again like back in the good old days. And so in a very dramatic moment, Christmas Day, uh, 800 AD, Charlemagne comes from France to worship in Rome. So if you would please welcome to the stage, Charlemagne, King of the Franks. Right there, there you go. If you stand right there, Mr. Charlemagne. All right, and with much fanfare, Charlemagne and his entourage march all the way from France to Rome to worship on Christmas Day in St. Peter's Basilica. And then with much pomp and circumstance, the Pope, uh, uh, Pope Leo III, crowns Charlemagne, the emperor of uh, Rome that day, uniting Rome and France, creating what we now call the Holy Roman Empire. And I, and so I don't know if he actually said these words, but in essence, uh, Leo uh, basically said this. I am the Pope, you are the King. There you go, he's gonna coordinate him, there you go, put it on him. There you go. I'm the Pope, you're the King. And so can you understand now with the power that the church has on this day? You have the Pope deciding who the Emperor is. And he started the Holy Ro Roman Empire on this day. That's a lot of power. And unfortunately, this created a lot more corruption in the church. Uh, we talk about this era a lot and we refer, to it, we refer to it as the Dark Ages. It was a very spiritually dark time. And there are a couple major reasons why. One is that this political vacuum that existed created a power need in their culture and the church was only, the only place that they could satisfy that need. And so when the church, church had all this power, a lot of evil people gravitated towards leadership in the church. You can have a, you have a, a bunch of ungodly guys becoming Pope in this era, doing a lot of really bad things in the name of the church. And the reason they wanted to gravitate toward that leadership was not because of any spiritual calling, but just for the power. The other thing that was happening at this time was biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy was rampant at this time, and really illiteracy was rampant at this time because it was before the invention of the printing press. And all the Bibles in the church were hand copied. And usually only the church had one copy, and it was at the church. And they would actually chain it to the church so no one would steal it. And so you couldn't own your own copy. You couldn't order it on Amazon. You couldn't download the app on your smartphone. And so people were not able to read the Bible. They were just listening to whatever their priest said, what the leaders of the church said, believing that it was the truth, even though Sometimes what the leaders would say was far from the truth of God's word. How would anybody know? And so this problem reached its apex in 1500 AD. And two dynamics were at play that set the stage for much needed reform in the church. One was, of course, the invention of Gutenberg's printing press in the middle 1400s. People are, for the first time, reading the Bible for themselves. And they're saying, wait a minute. That's not what my preacher's been saying all these years. Where did that come from? And they started realizing there were many things going on in the church not according to the Bible. 
The other thing that set the stage uh, for major reform in the church was a certain doctrine that was introduced that was so far from scripture that it was obvious that the church needed to be reformed. And it was the doctrine of indulgences. Have you ever heard about the doctrine of indulgences? Basically what this taught was that if you give the church money, enough money, you can do whatever you wanna do. If you give the church some money, you can indulge yourself. And one of the things they would say is that if you give the church some money, we'll make sure that your relative soul is released from purgatory early. And so basically they're saying, if you give the church enough money, we'll get grandma out of purgatory. How about that? And it's no wonder in this fundraising scheme, they had all the funds they needed to build all those phenomenal cathedrals during this era in Western Europe. And so now that was so far out there that good people in the church said, we have got to do something about this. And the most prominent of these people was a Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. So would you please welcome to the stage, Martin Luther. There you, all right, so why don't you stand right in front of him. There you go. This is actually Martina Luther. Uh, so um, Martin Luther is a Catholic priest, and he starts to read the Bible on his own, and he starts seeing all the things that were seriously wrong with the Catholic Church in this era. And he pens a lengthy paper, a manifesto, kind of like Jerry Maguire, and he's listing the 95 reasons he thinks the church needs to reform, 95 theses. And he hammers this manifesto to the front door of the church where he served in Wittenberg, Germany. And so Martin Luther, if you'll hold up your hammer, I want you to say 95 reasons. All right, we call this the 95 Theses, 95 reasons why the church needed to reform. Now, it sounds kind of funny that he would nail it to the front door of the church, but that was kind of his way of posting it, what we would do on a billboard today, or we might take out a full-page ad in the newspaper or a commercial on Super Bowl Sunday. There are ways that we publish our important thoughts, and this is how you would have you would have published your paper on that day. So he nailed it to the front door of the church in the town square for everybody to read. And he hoped that this would begin a reform movement in the Catholic Church. But instead, because some very powerful but not so godly people had taken over the church, they kicked him out. They excommunicated Martin Luther and uh, because of his 95 theses. And so what is a Catholic priest supposed to do when he's got no church to go to? Remember, there's only one church in town. And so if you're kicked out, you got nowhere to go. And so uh, he started worshiping on his own at home and eventually a few other people started worshiping with him and it forced Martin Luther to realize that the Church of Christ isn't some hierarchical structure, some big organized religion. The Church of Jesus is simply those people who are truly lifting up the name of Jesus and, and uh, the Son of the living God. It doesn't matter what the name on your sign is or what your structure is, this is the true church. And so he started his own church that we call today the Lutheran Church. And did any of you, I'm curious, anybody in this room grow up in the Lutheran Church or maybe your parents grew up in the Lutheran Church? Several of you. Well, this is your history. And, um, and over the next hundred years, from this point, for the next hundred years, a lot of other people followed suit, leaving the Catholic Church, starting their own church. And some of them were excommunicated like Martin Luther. Some of them got so sick of the church not reforming that they went and started their own church. And so you have many groups who became what we now call the Protestant Reformation. The word Protestant Reformation means Protestant, it's protest. They're protesting and, and Reformation, they're wanting to reform the church, the Protestant Reformation. And many groups were formed out of this area, era of church history. Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, they all trace their roots in one way or another back to the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation. 
Now, the great thing about this era is that people are finally caring about the truth. They are reading the Bible. They care about doctrine. They're trying to get serious about the truth. The bad thing, though, is that for the first time, basically ever, the church is divided. Uh, throughout this period, all, all through along this time, the church has basically been one. Uh, in, but uh, now the church is divided. In fact, it's so bad that every time you get in an argument with somebody, you just go down the street and start your own church. You get in a doctoral disagreement, that's okay, you just go start your own church or your, no, your own denomination. Does that sound familiar? My favorite example of this division is a Presbyterian denomination in Scotland. It was the Old Light Antiburger Seceder Presbyterian Church. That's how many times the Presbyterians had divided themselves in just a couple hundred years. The Presbyterians had broken off from the Roman Catholic Church here in the Protestant Reformation, and then the Presbyterians had an argument about who could choose their preacher. And so uh, did the denomination get to choose the preacher or did the church get to choose the preacher? And the churches who wanted to choose their own preacher uh, broke off, they were called the seceders. And so you have the seceder Presbyterian church denomination. And the seceder Presbyterians eventually had an argument about whether or not a local town has any say in who the preacher is. And some said that the towns should get to choose because it's their one church in town. And back then in Scotland, the, the, the towns were called burgs. And so you've got the, the burgers and the anti-burgers. And so, so you've got the, the anti-burger seceder Presbyterian denomination. Then the anti-burger seceder Presbyterians had an argument over the Westminster Confession. Westminster Confession. Were you allowed to add anything to it or not? And those that said you shouldn't were kind of the old school people. They were called the old light anti-burger seceder Presbyterians. Presbyterians. And those that said you, you could add something to it were called the New Light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterians. It's dizzying, isn't it? And so I want to introduce you this morning to a preacher from Scotland who was a preacher in the Old Light Annaberger Seceder Presbyterian denomination. So would you give a very warm welcome to Thomas Campbell, preacher Thomas Campbell. There he comes. <laughs> Now, one thing you have to understand uh, right now is about the atmosphere in the churches in these days, is that they were being so serious about the truth that if you did not agree with the church's teaching exactly, uh, let's say that you visited a church uh, and were not a member of, of that particular kind of church, uh, and you didn't, you didn't agree with exactly everything that they said, uh, their creed, then you were not welcome to take communion at that church if you visited on Sunday. Basically, you were not welcome to fellowship with that group until you agreed completely with their doctrinal statement. And there was no fellowship across denominational lines, even within your own faith heritage. And this fundamentally bothered preacher Thomas Campbell. In 1798, uh, preacher Thomas accepted a church in Ahori, Ireland. And, he had, and then he opened an academy during the week that he taught at, just three miles up the road in Rich Hill. So he preached uh, in Ahori, and then he taught in Rich Hill. And uh, what happened is he started making friends with the people in Rich Hill where he lived, and there was an independent Presbyterian church. And so what he would begin doing is he would preach at his own church on Sunday morning, and then he would worship with the independent church on Sunday night where he lived. And believe it or not, this, this, um, strongly, this was strongly frowned upon by his supervisors. And Thomas just really felt like this wasn't right. And he attempted a couple of times uh, to bring all the churches in Scotland and Ireland together, the Presbyterian churches back together, but he wasn't able to do it. And, and it just really stressed him out. And so he went to see his doctor because he was having physical conditions about how upset he was about how splintered the church was. And guess what the doctor prescribed for him? 
He said, you need to, you need to go to America. Uh, that that was the, the prescription. He said, America's late 1700s. It's the great frontier, wide open spaces, slower pace of life, uh, and uh, fresh air and all that. He says, you need to go to America. And so he, he did. He took him up on it, and he moved to America. And when Thomas got to America, he couldn't, for the life of him, find any other Old Light, Annaberger, Seceder Presbyterians. And, uh, and so he did find some other Presbyterians. Uh, and since they couldn't find anyone in from their particular uh, group, they started worshiping together. Scandalous. And so Thomas Campbell thought, this is exactly the way, uh, what I've been looking for all along. There are Christians, good people in other groups, not just mine. And so Thomas Campbell's famous line that he developed was this. That's right. We are not the only Christians. Wouldn't it be great if we could fellowship across denominational lines with all those who boldly hold up the name of Jesus? Now, Thomas was really worried because his oldest son, Alexander, was also a preacher back in Scotland in the Old Light, Annaberger, Seceder, Presbyterian denomination. And he was worried uh, that um, his son would be pretty ticked off at him because he's basically ditching his denomination. And so they hadn't talked in a long, long time. Back then, there was no email or FaceTime uh, where they could communicate very much. And so eventually, his son, Alexander, did come to America to visit his dad, Thomas. And they have this wonderful reunion. And as they begin talking about ministry, Thomas discovers that unbeknownst to him, his son, Alexander, back in Scotland, had become convicted about and was praying about the exact same kind of unity in the church of church at large, across denominational lines. And so together, they feel like God is leading them to begin a movement in America to unify and bring the church back to Christ. And so they end up meeting with another great preacher from this era, the Second Great Awakening. Do you remember back in your history books about the Second Great Awakening in world history? When you, it's in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so I want to introduce you to one final character this morning. Uh, he is a famous preacher from the Second Great Awakening, and his name is Barton W. Stone. Would you warmly welcome to the stage Barton W. Stone? There we go. And he's got a preaching Bible with him, big enough to choke a mule is what my grandpa would say. Barton W. Stone was a great preacher. He participated in the great camp meeting revivals on the frontier of America. Most notably, the largest of those camp meetings was the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801. And one of the things that was great about these revivals was that due to their size, they would have 10 or 20,000 people that would come in covered wagons, uh, that the preachers, they'd have to get extra preachers from around town to come preach because there was no sound systems. And so the preachers would collaborate on a sermon and then each one of them would get up on a stump in the evening and preach to the people that could hear them within earshot of that stump. And we saw hundreds, even thousands of people giving their life to Christ. And Barton W. Stone said to himself, wouldn't it be wonderful if this is the way it was all the time, not just at the revivals, that the churches are partnering together, working together, regardless of your denomination. We, we forget our denominational distinctions, and we're just Christians for the week, Christians for the day, just Christians all the time. And so, he ends up meeting Thomas and Alexander Campbell, and they eventually decide to, to start a movement where they would get people back to the Bible and get people back to just being Christians. And so one of their founding slogans is actually a two-part slogan. It starts with Thomas Campbell saying, but we are not the only Christians, we're Christians only. 
We're not the only Christians, we're Christians only. We're not the only Christians. There are other good Christians in other groups. And you don't have to be part of our group to be a Christian. You don't have to be a part of our group to go to heaven. But we are gonna be Christians only. We're not gonna be Baptists or Lutherans or Presbyterians. And this is where the idea for just being a Christian church came from. So all across the frontier of America, actually starting here in Virginia, churches began to change the name on their sign. And whatever their denomination had been before simply got changed to Christian Church or Church of Christ. And this movement has become known since to be called the Stone Campbell Movement, named after Barton W. Stone and Thomas Campbell, or the Restoration Movement. And you can actually go out to old churches in the country and read their history, and they would say, well, we were once a Methodist church or a Baptist church, but during the Stone Campbell Movement of the early 1800s, we changed our name simply to be a Christian church. And this movement is also called the Restoration Movement because it didn't set out to reform the Catholic Church, but go all the way back to the Book of Acts, to the New Testament Church, and say, let's go back to doing things the way they did back then. Let's have independent churches, autonomous churches, led by local elders. Let's say the Bible's gonna be our guide, and we're gonna fellowship across denominational lines with any church willing to unashamedly lift up the name of Jesus. And so that's our history timeline today. And what I want to do is go back to beginning and have every one of our characters say their their one line uh, together. Starting back here with Peter, we'll go right across the stage. There you go. Who's next? There you go. In this sign, conquer. There you go. All right, there you go. Give them a hand for their hard work this morning. All right, you guys can go sit back down. Well, let me wrap this up pretty quickly. If I could place us on this timeline, Velocity Christian Church is right here at 2021, right at the end of the line. And your church traces its history back through, uh, through this restoration movement. Back in 2004, some of the leaders of Waypoint envisioned a church that would be started in this area of short pump, and so uh, that would be just a Christian-only kind of church. And so they hired a young family to launch it. We've got a picture of that family here. There we go, there, there's the family, and you'll notice uh, several things. This is our family. There's only four of us at there. Well, there's five, but one has not come out yet. We, Lisa was pregnant when we launched this church, and, so, and, and I had no gray hair back then, so uh, that's what you all did to me as the pastor of this church. And, so they, and there were some great adventurous people that helped us get this church started, uh, like the, uh, the, the Riders and the Cravers and the Carters, Scott and Jen Esposito, Sam Turner, a single gal named Brendan Daly who would become Brendan Spoonhour, and it was a fun time. And now people all over the country in our movement celebrate what is happening in churches like this one, even around the world where the goals of Thomas Campbell and Barton W. Stone are still happening today. Churches that just simply go back to the Bible, united across denominational lines based on whether or not you're lifting up the name of Jesus. Uh, For example, many of you grew up in a different church background, a certain denomination, and within your denomination, there were two major factions. Uh, There are churches that no longer preach the Bible very much and don't talk about Jesus, and in that same same group, uh, there are people that are still holding up the name of Christ and faithfully preach God's word. And in those churches that are still preaching God's word, you feel more in common with other groups who are also preaching God's word than with the people in your own denomination who don't teach God's word and talk about 
about Jesus too much, right? And so we have come to call this, common, this biblical commonality among denominations as the evangelical church in America because we believe that we're still supposed to do what the Bible tells us to do, to evangelize. And there are people from all kinds of denominations within evangelical churches. We sing the same worship songs. We listen to the same preachers on the internet. Uh, we attend the same Christian conferences. We visit each other's churches on vacation because we believe that God is calling us to be unified and to lift up the name of Christ. So you are part of an evangelical Christian church that considers itself part of the restoration movement. And so I hope that you will not only understand your heritage here at Velocity, uh, but also love what's so great about this heritage. So to end this uh, lesson today, what I'd like to do is something that I think beautifully illustrates the unity that we have in Christ. It's really simple. On the count of three in a moment, I want you to call out the denomination you grew up attending. If you grew up attending a Methodist church, I want you to yell out Methodist. Lutheran, say Lutheran. Presbyterian, Presbyterian. Baptist, say Baptist. Catholic, Catholic. If you grew up bouncing around, say bouncing around. Uh, if you grew up not going to church at all, I want you to say heathen, all right? And so are you ready? On the count of three, yell out what you grew up going to. One, two, three. All right, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? Pretty discordant. There's not a lot of unity in that. Now on the count of three, let's say the name of Jesus together on three. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus. All right, now what I want you to do is call it out with all your heart, like you're proud to be a follower of Jesus. One, two, three. Jesus. All right. Now let's say the name of Jesus with just a whisper, just a, just a prayer, remembering all that he's done for each one of us on the cross. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 12, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And that is our simple goal at this church, to lift up the name of Jesus so that all people would be drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for using the church throughout history in spite of all of our failures, all of our faults. Thank you for all the, that you've done through every group, the Catholic Church, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Lutherans, even in the Christian Church. And Lord, we pray in all these groups that they're, we're thankful that there are people who have held to your word and they lift up the name of your son, Jesus. So we thank you for them. And so we pray today that you would unite the church today on the truths of your holy word and the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.